going to study what is perhaps maybe the most well-known parable, probably the good, maybe tied with the Good Samaritan. We're going to be studying the, uh, the, the prodigal son and a number of well-known individuals have classified this as the greatest short story ever written. And as I was wrestling with it and being blessed by it over the past few weeks, I would have to agree, it is probably, no doubt, at least the greatest short story ever told or ever written. However, I would also add to it, it's more than just a great short story. It is that. It is a great piece of literature, no doubt. However, it is also a parable um, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus used powerful parables as very powerful teaching tools that reveal to us um, things about God. And in this one, we are going to learn not just a great literary story, but Jesus is, through this parable, this very powerful teaching tool, Jesus is going to reveal to us truths about God and truths about us as human beings. And I think that this is important because without revelation, without God's revelation, without God's word, we will have a distorted view of both God and man. We will think incorrectly about ourselves and we will think incorrectly about God outside of God's revealed truth. And we see this all around us today. We see people who have skewed views of who we are as human people. Once we have abandoned the idea that we are image bearers of the Lord God Almighty, we begin to depart drastically from God's good purposes for us. Likewise, when we don't understand that we are creations of a holy God and that God Almighty, who made heaven and earth, also made us, we begin to abandon a, a, a correct understanding of who God is. So hopefully today we will be able to gain or be reminded of who we are and who God is. So let me just remind us of some of the context of this particular passage of text because it is not um, spoken or the parable is not given um, in a vacuum or independently all by itself that it has a place in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And remember that this is a response to an accusation that was made by the religious leaders. You'll recall way back up in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and we saw this last week, that tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear Jesus Christ. Now, they were coming to hear him, but some of the religious elite were grumbling that tax collectors and sinners were, were coming to hear Jesus. And so Jesus reminded or told a couple of parables, the first one of the lost sheep, the second one of the lost coin, and he reminded the religious leaders that God rejoices when sinners repent. And actually, their grumbling about sinners and tax collectors and sinners coming to hear him 
Their grumbling actually indicates their true condition. That is, they don't even know God because they, they despise the things that brings joy to God. They are despising that the thing that brings the great, one of the greatest joys to God is that a sinner would repent and they grumbled at it. Jesus says, you despise the thing that, God, that brings joy to God. You don't even know God. And so, I pray that as we read this, that we would also um, have joy. Maybe it will be a mirror towards us and also help us to reflect that, where am I in this story? And probably what, what I've discovered, as, as I've been looking through it, um, it's easy to think, oh, well, I'm the, I'm the younger son, I'm the prodigal son, or I'm the older son, I'm the, the legalist. What I find most likely is perhaps we're a little of both. We probably got a little bit of Pharisee and older brother in us, and we probably got a little bit of prodigal in us as well. And maybe at certain times I'm more prodigal than, uh, or more younger brother than older brother, or vice versa. But I would have to say that probably none of us escape this parable without seeing some image of ourselves. And it is a wonderful, wonderful mirror. But not only that, but it is uh, an opening of heaven because we see God revealed in his beauty and his splendor. So we need this parable. This parable is an important parable to us because it reminds us that God is in the saving business. And it's easy to get wrapped up in church and we do the thing and, I, you know, I get wrapped up in the schedule and, you know, what scriptures are we going to read and, you know, what's going to happen and how's all this going to flow together and, you know, I got this meeting and that meeting and God is in the saving business. That's what God does. And I pray that as a, as a church, we've really tried to focus on that. Our focus is on discipleship and the first part of a disciple is somebody has to come to know Christ. That's just at the very you can't be a disciple unless you are first following him. God is in the saving business. We will also get a detailed understanding or a detailed picture of what biblical repentance is. And I think that this is important. And ultimately, we will learn, folks, that none of us is righteous. There is one righteous one, and that is God alone. So this is a great passage of text to remind us that God saves sinners. He saves us that, that we are called to repent and that none of us deserve God's mercies and yet God is gracious and gives us what we do not deserve. So that's where we're at. Let's go ahead and let's read our text. Um, follow along with me in Luke chapter 5, verses 11 through 32. Listen to God's holy word. <clears throat> And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to him, to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread 
But I perish here because of hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And he said to his, and he said to, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and As he came, he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but when this, son, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost, and, he, and now he is found. This ends the reading of God's inerrant word. So we begin with this parable of a father and he has two sons and the younger son we often refer to as the prodigal son. And we should begin by noting, first of all, that sin is destructive. And it is destructive in in, in a number of ways and probably the primary way that sin is destructive is that it separates us. And here we see that father and son are separated. In other words, the the son goes to the father and basically says, give me my inheritance. I want my inheritance now. And I'm going to go and spend it in any way I desire. Some have noted that perhaps this is almost uh, an accusation of wishing that his father was dead. Just go ahead and give me what belongs to me after you die, and I'm just treating you as though you have already passed away. There is some debate about that. Um, I'm not certain. I would just simply say that regardless of how we look at this, the actions of the son were separate, were estranging him from his father. In other words, the, this was a shameful request. No matter how we look at this, it was a shameful requ- request, and it was going to cut off the relationship between father and son. The son did not honor the father, but desired to use the, the father's gracious gift for his own pleasures. So instead of using the father's gracious gifts that would bring honor to the father, or that would be beneficial to the son, he takes the gracious gifts of the father and uses them for his own selfish purposes. Basically, he goes and he throws his money away. That's basically what he does. He goes, the, the word here has the idea of he cast it to the wind. He just threw it out there. I find it interesting how the father let him go. 
I'm not saying that perhaps the father didn't plead with him. We don't know that from the story. But I can't imagine a father not saying, are you sure? I'd love for you to stay. Please stay. But the son was determined. I'm going to take what belongs to me and I'm going to go and live how I want to and do what I want to with the resources that you have provided. I'm going to use them for my own selfish purposes. And the father allows the son to go his own way. How grievous this must have been. Allows the son to go and, I guess, live his own truth. Knowing there's only one truth. And, and this is one of the issues we find with sin. First of all, sin separates. It separates us from our Heavenly Father. It is destructive in that. And sin always begins with freedom, but it also always ends with bondage. Nobody begins a life of, of the prodigal saying, man, I got all this stuff. I'm going to go out and have a great time. Nobody's saying that it's going to... Nobody thinks about it ending badly. It's always put forth as a promise of a good time and a party always. And it starts out that way as well. It begins that way. Oh, look at this. This is great. I'm having a blast. I'm having fun. I'm free. I've never been this free in all of my life. But it always ends in bondage. And so, sin is destructive. Just a quick summary of that point. We sin with the belief that it will make us happy. We violate God's commands. God is the one who has all of these resources for our good and for our benefit and for His glory. But we say, I want all of those resources that, you, that, 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 that are yours, that, that you are going to give to me, but I don't want to use them for your glory. I don't want to use them for your purpose. I don't want to use them in a way that would be beneficial. I want to use them in a way that is selfish and fulfills my own needs. Thank you very much. Thank you for your stuff. I will just go and use it in my own selfish ways. And we believe that this is going to make us happy, but it always separates us from our Father. And it can't make us happy, because once we're separated from our, from our Heavenly Father, and as we discussed last week, God is the source of all joy. Remember last week? God is the most joyful being in the entire universe. And once you've separated yourself from the source of joy, and heaven is the storehouse of joy, and you've separated yourself from the source of joy and the storehouse of joy, there will be no joy. You might be temporarily happy, but you will not be filled with joy. You can't be. Why? Because God is the source of joy. I remember, and I, I've used this, said this before, I remember um, prior to him becoming president, then Mr. Trump said, whoever said that money can't buy happiness does not know where to shop. That always struck me as interesting because I felt it was such a self-defeating statement. It demands that you shop. And you have to keep shopping. Because whatever you buy that brings some sort of happiness or joy will suddenly fade and you will need to shop again. 
that whatever it is you get, that new car, that new remodeled house, or that new house, or whatever it happens to be, it will bring a certain level of happiness, perhaps even joy. But it will quickly fade, and you will need to go shopping again. But God, who is the source of all joy because he is the most joyful being when we are united with him and not separated from him, can be a fountainhead of renewing joy over and over again. Why? Because he's the most joyful being in the entire universe and heaven is the most, is the storehouse of joy and it is a place where joy is, um, is distributed. This, heaven distributes its joy to its people. And so the first thing we see is that we sin. We take God's good gifts and use them for our own purposes and pleasure in the, in the wrongful thinking that this will bring us some sort of happiness and freedom, but it does not. It brings us bondage because God is the only one who gives freedom and God is the source of joy. So we've cut ourselves off from the source. Of course, the lie never tells you that. So the, the son goes and he takes all of his stuff and he, he spends everything on reckless living. Literally, he casts his, his money to the wind. And when he had spent everything, something happened that he didn't plan on. A severe famine arose in the country. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. I find this interesting. No one gave him anything. He probably had a whole lot of friends when he was throwing money to the wind. He does not have a friend any longer. Perhaps they've also been caught up in the famine. Perhaps they were just good time buddies who hung out when there was something to, to benefit them. I don't know, but he's got nothing. He doesn't have a friend, and he's feeding pigs. And we, of course, realize that Pigs were unclean animals to, uh, to the Jews. But God had declared them unclean and they were to have nothing to do with him. And so here he is um, feeding pigs, wishing he could eat their food. I long to eat as good as the pig. Pigs are eating better than me. This is where he's at. I'm in a foreign land in an unclean job and I got the unclean animals living better than me. And here we begin to see the concept, the biblical concept of repentance. First of all, he first of, a couple things we should recognize about repentance. The first thing we should recognize is that repentance understands our true condition. I mean, he realizes, man, I'm feeding pigs. This is a far cry from where I was. This is a far cry from even the lowest of my father's servants. He takes the lowest job possible. It is defiling and it does not provide. And then it says, but when he came to himself, or maybe more literally, when he came to his senses, Repentance understands our true condition. It does not 
for us to repent, we, it's imperative that we see this is where I am. My true condition is not good. I'm feeding pigs. And he realizes that his father's hired servants have more than enough. I want to point that out, but I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. But he realizes, man, I'm feeding pigs. My father's hired servants have more than enough. There's something wrong with this picture. So he's realizing something's not right. And when we repent, we've got to first realize, man, things are broken. Something isn't right. He begins to see his true condition. He sees that there is a problem and he sees that he cannot fix the problem. In other words, he comes to an end of himself. This is what God does. God brings us to an end of ourselves. And it's so important. And I think that's one of the reasons that, or perhaps maybe the primary reason, why God gives us the law. I know that as Christians, we often proclaim that I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, and that's absolutely true. But sometimes I think as Christians then, being under grace, we forget the importance of the law. Because the law is, we, we think, oh, well, that's Old Testament, or that's something that's been done away with, or that's something that's not good. But Paul says the law is very good. The law is good if it's used lawfully. problem is too many people use the law unlawfully. They use it poorly. It's kind of like it's like any tool. It's like a hammer. A hammer is a great tool. If you want to pound nails, it is a fantastic tool. If you want to fuse two pieces of metal together, it's a horrible tool. If you want to do delicate work, it probably is not your best tool. You could put two pieces of metal together and I suppose you could pound them so forcefully that they would end up melding together but you would destroy the work in the process. Hammers are great when they do what hammers are meant to do but hammers also bring great destruction when not used hammerly. And the law is good. But when the law is not used lawfully, it brings destruction. But here, the law brings him, the law is important because it brings us to an end of ourselves. We read in Scripture, don't be angry or don't murder, and you're like going, I got it. I'm good. Not too bad. Then we learn, don't be angry. Now we're going, well, wait a second. That's something different. I don't know that I can do that. Scripture says, don't commit adultery. And we're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm good on that. Then it says, don't even lust after another person. You're going, wait a second. I don't know if I can do that. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing, but, but, but trust even tomorrow to the Lord that, that, that you don't need to worry about what tomorrow is going to bring. You're going, wait a second, I can't do that. I am, a, I am an anxious, worrisome individual. I can't do that. Oh, wretched person that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this bondage of death? Thanks be to God who has brought about our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, the law brings us to an end of ourselves. It brings us to a place that says, I cannot do this. And this is where the prodigal is at. I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I, I'm in a mess, and I can't fix the mess that I'm in. Even though it's a mess that I got myself into, I have now no resources, no ability, no strength, nothing whatsoever to get myself back. I can't fix it. Oh, folks, in order for us to return to our great God and Savior, we need to realize I can't do it. I just can't do it. Because when you come to an end of yourself, you come to an extremely good place. You come to a place where Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has no limitations, all-powerful, all-glorious, can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so the prodigal comes to an end of himself. And he says, and I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your sins. Notice what he's going to do. This is another really important issue on repentance. He's going to turn from his current conditions and he's going to turn to his father. And this is such a necessary component of repentance because oftentimes we hear people say that repentance literally means a change of mind. And it does mean a change of mind. We can't deny that. But I think if we limit it to changing our minds, we have missed the entirety of biblical repentance because it is a change of mind. But it's not just a change of mind. It is a change of mind from one thing to another. It's, a, it's also more than self-improvement. It's more than just becoming a moral person. Well, I was a thief and now I no longer steal. Or I was a gangbanger and now I'm a motivational speaker who tells kids not to um, go out, not to join gangs and, and, and not to live that kind of lifestyle. I was an extortionist, um, schemer, scammer, um, but I've learned my ways and I've improved myself and now I'm a very good person who goes around teaching people how not to get scammed, or I was a hacker and now I don't hack at all. I'm, I'm just a, a good person. That is not biblical repentance. That's moralism. And the Bible is not a moralistic, it is not mere moralism. Lots of people can pick themselves up by their bootstraps and go and become a better person, but thief can, many people who are thieves can, no lo- can live a life of no longer stealing or extortioners no longer extorting. But repentance is not becoming a moral person. It is a turning from, but it is also as important as what do you turn to? See, the moral person is turned to themselves. But that's not biblical repentance. Again, just moralism. I've turned from my old ways and I, by my own abilities and my own strength and my own wherewithal, have pulled myself up by my bootstraps, taken the necessary steps, and now I am a good person and and an acceptable person in society. But biblical uh, repentance is I am turning from my sin and I am turning to God. 
I'm not turning to myself. I'm turning to my Heavenly Father. Repentance turns to the one, the only one, who has the true remedy. And so, I will arise and I will go to my Father. I will leave the pigsty and I will go home to my Heavenly Father. That's biblical repent, a part of biblical repentance. So, we see first two points of biblical repentance. We recognize our true condition and we turn from our sin and turn to our Father. But there's another issue here and that is important when we talk about repentance and that is the idea of confession. Confession just simply means to say the same thing. To say the same thing as. In other words, it is to take full responsibility. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's what I've done. I'm the one who's done this. I'm going to say the same thing. So when we confess our sins, what are we doing? We are saying the same thing as God says about those actions. We are not justifying them. We are not trying to dilute them. We are saying, this is what they are. My actions are sinful, and I'm calling them that. That is, I'm going to take full responsibility. I am not going to blame my my sin on my environment, my father, my mother, my education, the neighborhood I grew up in, or anything like that. No, it's mine and mine alone. And it is entirely contrary to the way God has called me to live. Too often today, I think we are redefining our terms, and so that, well, I shouldn't say today, there's nothing new under the sun. For as long as there has been humankind, but it does seem um, kind of new, especially within the Christian realm. Maybe maybe that's what we're um, wrestling with, is that within the realm of, out of orthodox Christians were seeing people take what has always been considered sin, because the Bible says it, and redefining the term to normalize it. So there's nothing to repent of. There's nothing to, anything to turn from. Because the thing that I am doing that some would say is contrary to God, I'm just going to redefine it and say it doesn't upset God at all. That actually it's normal and God celebrates it. The, uh, <clears throat> those of us who were at the, uh, the last uh, men's retreat last year in, in, in Williams, Dr. Orge was, uh, was speaking, and uh, he often tells the story. Dr. Orge was... Um, He's the president of Gateway Seminary, but he was also, uh, for many years, he, he's, he's a chaplain, and he was a chaplain for the San Francisco Giants. And so he deals with pro baseball players. And uh, <clears throat> So he gets, a, he gets a call. I won't go into all the details, but he, he gets a call, and um, Security at the airport, um, whatever, FAA, FBI, CIA are calling him um, because this guy ran through this, one of his players ran through the security checkpoint. Um, 
And the reason he ran through the security checkpoint was because he was chasing after his girlfriend, whom he had just had a, a big argument with. They had been in Las Vegas, and there was a big argument. Um, she went and got on a flight. He was chasing after her, ran through. You don't run through um, checkpoints, security checkpoints in the airport, all right? There will be consequences to those actions. So the guy's on the phone, and he's like going, and Dr. Orge is like, uh, and he didn't mention the name, and he's just like going, So you're, you're going after your girlfriend because you got in an argument with her. Yeah, that's what I did. My question is, what are you doing with this woman when your wife is at home? Oh, Dr. Orge, look at her. Here's a picture of her. She's absolutely stunning. Going, okay. So, what are you doing with this woman when your wife is at home? Well, I believe that God would desire that I would be happy. And she makes me happy. Never mind the fact that he's in jail right now. You're in jail because of her, but that's another thing. Let's redefine the terms. Redefine what pleases and displeases God. And then attempt to live life. No, confession doesn't do that. Confession says, this is wrong. This is, this is what God says is right, and this is what God says is not right. This is how we align ourselves with God. Confession says the same thing as God. It does not redefine what God loves and what God calls sin. And so, The boy says, I have sinned, and he accepts the consequences of his choices. I've sinned. And whatever the consequences may be, they will fall upon me. I will take my lumps with them. But here's the other thing, and it's kind of silent. It's running in the background here. And that is the idea of faith, because, can, because repentance has an element of faith. I think if you forget the element of faith and repentance, we're, we're, we don't have a complete picture. But there's faith here. There's a lot of faith here. Look at this. He believes that his father is going to be good to him. I'll arise, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, I've sinned against you. Now make me the lowest of your servants. He's got some level of faith that he's not going to get kicked out by his father. There is some element of believing that my father will take me back. And I love this phrase. He's like going, I'll be the lowest. Notice in the, earlier he says, my father's hired servants have more than enough to eat. It's an interesting point because generally a hired day, day laborer would get enough for the day. And each day would have to work for just enough to make it through the day. But the father was generous. He gave his hired workers more than enough. More than enough. So he understands, my father's a good man. And I'm going to bank on his goodness. And while I don't deserve his goodness, I've done nothing to merit his favor towards me. I know he's a good man, and so I'm going to return to him in all of my humility, in all of my uncleanness, in all of my brokenness. I'm going to go, and I am going to plead his goodness. And I'm going to, I have a level of faith that he will not cast me aside. Confession has an element 
of faith because the, the boy knows that my father is generous. Maybe he'll be generous with me. I can only hope, but I'm going to believe. I'm gonna, it's worth taking the risk. And then we come to the issue of the father. And perhaps this is maybe one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. I'm going to rise and I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to tell him that I have sinned. And so he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And and numerous commentators have noted that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. In other words, it appears that his father was looking for him. His father was longing for his son to return. And then it says, and he felt compassion. And he runs to him. And certainly I'm not the first person to to identify how Jewish men don't run. They wore long robes. To look at the leg was like scandalous. But in order to run in a long robe, you got to hike it up. And so the father sees his son and with compassion. I don't care how undignified I am. Up comes the robe. I'm running to my son. I don't care what you think or you think or the town thinks. Let there be gossip. I don't care. That's my son. I'm undignified. I don't care. And he embraces and he falls on him. Remember, his son's been feeding pigs. He is ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, but he is also probably hygienically and physically unclean. I don't know what a pig feeder smells like. Cast dignity to the side. Cast ceremonial standards to the side. Cast hygiene to the side. Cast all of that to the side. This is my son and a big giant hug. Welcome home. Folks, a full embrace. Not a go get a shower. Not let's wipe a few things off. Not go to the priest and get, get a sacrifice. Full embrace. Full embrace. His nastiness filthy and as ugly as he may be. Full embrace. Folks, I want you to understand this. With confession. With confession comes reconciliation. In other words, those who come humbly to God can be confident that he will receive them. Full embrace. But it's not just full embrace, it's full restoration. This is surprising. Maybe this is one of the things that makes this one of the greatest short stories ever told. Bring a robe, bring a ring, bring sandals and kill the fatted calf. The son says, I want to be your servant. I want to be your slave. And the father says, absolutely not. You are my son. Fully restored sonship. Bring the robe. Slaves don't wear robes. My sons wear robes. Bring a ring, symbol of authority, household authority. You are a member of this household. Bring sandals. Slaves don't wear sandals. Sons wear sandals. Bring sandals and kill the fatted calf. They didn't eat a whole lot of meat in those days. Meat would have been reserved for very special occasions, such as the son coming home. 
You are not my slave. You will not be my slave. You are not a servant. You are my son. And you, when you come back to me, you are fully, completely, thoroughly, 100% restored. You want to be my servant. That's not good enough. You're my son. You're my daughter. Fully restored. And so, as I said, the son was content to be a slave. But the father fully restores him as his child. And so with reconciliation comes restoration. And then you will notice there's a party. There is a celebration. This is kind of the common theme between all three of these parables, is it not? Let's throw a party because that which was dead is now alive. That which is lost is now found. This is a a lesson to the religious elite who grumbled when sinners and tax collectors came to Jesus. But Jesus is celebrating because when lost children come home, there is a party. That would be a great story, don't you think? I mean, if I stop here, or if Jesus stopped here, we'd be going, man, what a cool, what a great parable. That may be the, the greatest story ever written. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's got another little thing that I think just really launches this parable over the top, and that is the response of the older brother. The older brother begins to grumble. So he smells barbecue, and he hears music. So he's like, what's going on? And he asks a servant, what's going on? He says, oh, your brother's come home. Notice this in verse 28. This made the older brother angry and he refused to go in. I think that's just so interesting. Because he was the insider, but now he's the outsider. He was the brother who had full access to the house and now he's, he's outside because of his own wicked heart. He will not go into the party because of his own wickedness. And now he attacks his father. His father comes out to him. And basically, he says to his father, you are stingy, you are unfair, where is justice? I have never crossed you, I've never done anything that's wrong, where is justice? Where is it for me? You are an unjust father. But then he also despises his brother. Doesn't even call him my brother. He says, this son of yours, who went and spent his money on wild living, And now you receive your son back. We should note that the sin of self-righteousness is as damning and estranging as the sins of the flesh. Both of these brothers have sinned. Neither of them is righteous. One thinks he is. But he is just as condemned as the prodigal. And he also will need to repent if he's going to go inside. But I love the father's response. My son. My son. And this is a very tender form of son. We could easily say, my child. My child. He's just been accused, the father has just been accused of being unjust. And the father says, my child. You're still my son. 
All that I have is yours. It's always been yours. And the return of your brother does not diminish your status one bit. The return of your brother um, doesn't diminish anything. You've always had access to me. Your brother coming home does not diminish your access to me. Everything I've had has always been yours. It still is. But notice what the Father says, your brother. But your brother has come home. And therefore, the circumstances necessitate celebration. I love how love is extended to both of the brothers. Both of them need to repent. Both of them have sinned against their father. Both of them are estranged from their father, and their father embraces the one and tenderly speaks to the other. Both of them have despised their father, and their father loves them both and is calling them both home. Here's an irony. All that the older brother could desire was inside the house, but he was outside And you'll note that the last has become first and the first has become last. Here's another thing that I think makes this a a great short story. You will note that the parable is left open. Jesus doesn't say what happens to the older brother, does he? This is being directed towards the Pharisees and and the scribes and the Pharisees who are grumbling the tax collectors and sinners um, are coming to Jesus. And he tells, the, he gives the point about the older brother, which is definitely a, a direct, um, he's directly speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he leaves it open. What are you going to do? Are you going to come in and celebrate, or are you going to stay outside in your sin? Which one? Because the father's inside celebrating because your brother has come home. Which one are you going to do? Are you going to come inside and celebrate or are you going to stay outside and be separated from your Heavenly Father? Which one is it? I think that's just, br- just a brilliant ending. Which one? Will you? And, and I think then that's the question that for us, where, where would we be? Where would you be? Where would I be? And this is what he's asking the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Would you, if you were in the older brother's shoes, would you go in? Or would you in your anger say, no way? Will you go in and share in the joy? How will you respond to Jesus' search for the lost? So this is, like I said, I think perhaps one of the greatest short stories ever written. But it does so much more than a short story because it reveals to us something about our Heavenly Father. Don't miss that. It reveals something about us as human beings, as, as mankind. We, we have a variety of ways that we sin against our Heavenly Father. Perhaps it's in, it's in licentious living or in uh, sins of the flesh. Or perhaps it's in legalism, pride, and idolatry. But the bottom line, folks, which one are you? I can't speak for everybody, but... Probably somewhere along the lines, I'm a little of both. I pray, that, however, that when one comes and repents of their sin, that I will go in and share in the joy. So I'll close with this. 
Here's the thing. Our parable today displays for us the absolute reversal that accompanies repentance. The absolute reversal that accompanies repentance. Because repentance is, by nature, reversal. That it goes to full restoration and acceptance. Please do not miss that point. Repentance brings full restoration. Full restoration. There's also for us a call to respond to the repentant one. And how do we respond to the repentant one? With celebration. The father runs, arms outstretched to the returning prodigals. And he still does. He's still arms outstretched, running, undignified, uncaring about what others may think. A lost son is home. And there's going to be a party. Folks, the truth of the matter is this. The gospel is not to be hoarded by the righteous. But it is, the gospel is to involve us in redeeming the lost. We are called to redeem the lost. The gospel doesn't mean, well, I got mine now. All of you guys, maybe, hopefully one day you'll get it too. No, it now. Once the gospel has come to us, we are now involved in the work of the gospel. And that is going out and reclaiming the lost. Let's go ahead and spend a couple moments in quiet reflection and think about what God might speak to us through this parable.